The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What was it like to travel on the earliest trains, before they had open carriages or even toilets? When was the first rail accident or train hijack? And how did railways transform nations and continents? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, I'm putting your questions on the history of railways to Christian Wolmar, an expert on the history of train travel, whose many books on the subject include Railways and the Raj, British Rail and New History, and Blood and Iron, How the Railways Transformed the World. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the history of railways. We've had loads of great listener questions in, and I wanted to start us off with a question from Anna J. Morrie on Instagram, who has asked very simply, where was the first railway built? Ah, well, there isn't really a simple answer to that. It's quite complicated, because if you think about it, the railways are a combination of several different inventions. So you have to invent, obviously, uh, the rails to put the wagons on. You have to invent the wagons. You have to invent the wheel, actually. Um, And then you have to find a means of propulsion. And obviously, in the early days, that was horses or human beings. And so when you're talking about railways... I think your listener is actually talking about a steam-hauled railway on tracks. That is, again, it's quite complicated because the various uh, developments started back in the 17th century when actually there were mines at which people kind of hauled wagons to and from. And throughout the 18th century, there were developments in that respect and we had 
in fact, in the northeast of Britain, we had a whole system of wagonways which went from usually from a mine to a river. But these were quite complicated and there was quite a network, maybe uh, 100, 150 miles of this, these sort of uh, wagonways. But there was no steam propulsion. So the steam propulsion started at the beginning of the 19th century. And we date the first railway to... Uh, 1830, which is the Liverpool and Manchester Railway. Now, there were predecessors before that. There was one in 1825, the Stockton and Darlington Railway, but that was largely horse-drawn, largely just taking coal and other things to uh, the river, whereas the Liverpool and Manchester, 1830 in September, was the opening of the first railway linking two cities. It was double-tracked, it was entirely steam-hauled, and it was a very important kind of moment in history. And that's probably the date to fix upon, 1830. Excellent. And linking into that, Mr Favreau on Instagram has asked what you can tell us about the very early years of the railways. So perhaps you can tell us something about the idealism behind the project, the financing of it, and some of the innovation that went into it. Well, once you establish the concept, as it were, it was clear that this was game-changing. You know, the railways were the key invention of the 19th century. They were the catalyst for capitalism. They spread both technology and knowledge and goods and people uh, throughout individual countries and indeed throughout, eventually throughout the world. So they were the key innovation that enabled modern life. People obviously didn't know that at the time, but they did realise there was something special about this. So the fact that the railway started pretty much in in different countries around the same time, the 1830s, the first American railway, the Baltimore and Ohio, was also 1830, and other countries in Europe started their railways around the same time. They knew they were onto something big. And initially, of course, it started in a small way, often, you know, a 10 or 15 mile track between a a couple of uh, towns. But very soon, and within kind of a decade or slightly more than that, you started getting railway networks established whereby, you know, major cities quite far apart were linked. You started transporting both goods, lots of minerals, but also other goods and obviously passengers. And I think the the kind of growth of the railways in the mid-19th century was tremendous. It actually spread around all of Europe. Some countries, oddly enough, Cuba was an early developer of of railways. Uh, It spread to India by uh, the 1850s, Russia also in the actually in the 1840s, and so uh, it's the whole concept started spreading around the world, and everywhere it went, it was transformational. It kind of changed the very nature of those countries. Well, leading on from that, I think I might know your answer to the following question, but Susan Pollitz on Twitter has asked, would I be exaggerating if I said the railways changed just about everything in the 19th century? I'm guessing that you're going to say, no, that wouldn't be an exaggeration. Absolutely. That's no exaggeration. You have to think of almost anything 
and you can think the railways change it. So just to give a random example, the railways were the biggest companies in the world in that period, in the mid-19th century. There was nothing that had gone before it. There were factories and the like beforehand, but nothing with that kind of spread uh, whereby you had a company that you know ran, say, two, three, four hundred miles across the country. It had stations in between. It had a whole lot of wagons and locomotives and carriages, signalling equipment, rails and so on. There was nothing like it, right? So they created the modern company. They created modern accounting practices. They absolutely revolutionised the way people got around. They enabled things like the Great Exhibition in 1852 in, in uh, the UK to happen because otherwise people wouldn't be able to get to the Great Exhibition. So it's very difficult to think of any anything that the railways didn't change. They created commuting, for example. You know, you, you got the railways where they enabled people to live further away from their work. They enabled department stores to send out, like Harrods, to send out goods all around the country by rail, and so on. So your listener is spot on. It's no exaggeration to say they changed everything. And what can you tell us about some of the technology that went into these early locomotives and and the engines themselves? Well, that's something else that actually the railways were very important. They were a catalyst for the development of all sorts of technology, just as, you know, Going to the moon was a a, a way of uh, developing all sorts of different inventions. And, and the railways uh, did the same. So there's the, the technology itself, which is complex. I mean, steam engines were obviously the, the only form of uh, traction for quite a long time. They replaced the, Once they replaced the horse, the horse had no chance. And the steam engines were much, much better. And so they improved no end over the space of, of time, became much more efficient, got much more powerful, so the technology was uh, absolutely crucial, improving the railways, making them more efficient and so on. And there was a vast amount of spin-off from that. You know, the technology that was being developed for the railways was used for all sorts of other things. And in turn, because the railways enabled transport between different places, they helped develop uh, technology in all sorts of other fields. Sikander Kamal has asked a question which seems quite pertinent here, which is about how the railways played into the Industrial Revolution or whether industrialisation fed into the railways. Was it a two-way process there? Uh, Well, I would argue it was the first of those. Yes, of course, we had the Industrial Revolution, which starts in, say, the uh, mid-18th century. And we get quite a lot of factories and towns, particularly in the North, start building up around that. And, you know, we have those terrible images of kind of these uh, smoke-ridden towns and people working in terrible conditions and so on. But there's no doubt that without the railways, the Industrial Revolution would... I certainly have spread much more slowly, or if at all, and you know we would have remained, or the world would have remained as a largely rural economy based on agriculture for much, much longer. The the railways enabled the spread of industrialization. They encouraged as well what's called the agglomeration effect. In other words, the concentration of certain industries in certain places. There's a great kind of advantage in people coming together in a particular area and, say, making all the boots or making all the chemicals or or making the steel and so on. Um, And the railways greatly encouraged that. And they greatly encouraged urbanisation. And 
You know, all of civilization is essentially rooted in the development of towns and cities. So in every respect, the railways were responsible for the spread of industrialization. And as I said, the, the, the way that we arrived in the modern world. So we've spoken a lot so far about progress that was brought in by the railways. But Catherine on Instagram has a really interesting question, which is, in what ways did the railways degrade things rather than revolutionise them? So there's no doubt, of course, given the magnitude of railway construction, that there was some changes and some degradation uh, to the countryside. Indeed, Wordsworth was very keen on not having the railways go to the Lake District as they would bring in lots of people, bring in nasty kind of steam engines, and, uh, you know, he would thought uh, damage, you know, his favoured environment. And there were certainly some people who thought that. There were aristocrats who didn't want the railways anywhere near their land and, and so on. But by and large, the railway's footprint is really much smaller than subsequent developments like roads and motorways. I mean, if you think about it, the railways kind of hug the landscape. They hug the countryside. They don't go up and down very much. They go through the countryside in tunnels or over bridges wherever possible because that's the way they have to be built. They can't be built with kind of uh, steep gradients. So they do blend naturally into the countryside in a way that uh, certainly subsequent developments, notably uh, roads, don't. And indeed, you know, you, you, you can see that from, from the history that most people do appreciate the railways uh, in the countryside. And there's plenty of wonderful photographs of steam engines or even modern trains going through the countryside. And yet you're very unlikely to see such a picture of a motorway. You know, they, of course, there was some degradation, but by and large, they blended into the countryside in a way that is acceptable to most people. So now we've got a question from Izzy about who built the railways, how long it took and the and the treatment of the people who worked on railways. Lots of different people um, on our social media channels have asked about this, but in different contexts and different countries. So I wonder if there's any global examples you might be able to bring in here as well. By and large, the, the, the railways were built with private finance. There was often the state, the governments were involved in planning them, sometimes in funding them, sometimes in, in subsidising but to a large extent, it was uh, people putting in money, uh, investing in the railways, seeing that this was a great potential of profit. And the people building them were uh, labourers. I mean, much of this was done really in the 19th century. I should think most railways in the world were built in the 19th century. And so there wasn't much mechanisation. There was some kind of steam, portable steam engines, as it were, that helped dig things out and the like. But by and large, they were dug out uh, by hand. Tunnels were built by people kind of using explosives and the likes. Uh, it was quite dangerous. You know, landslips and, and explosions uh, would, would kill people. It was vastly labor intensive. So it, there were kind of, particularly in the UK, for example, there were bunches of navvies. They were called navvies because they also built the canals. And they were, so they were called navigators and navvies for short. You know, so there were huge groups of people set up in tents and, and temporary huts 
in particular places, build a few miles of railway, and then they'd move on to another place and cause some havoc. They drank a lot. They had a lot of fun and they weren't necessarily popular, but they did the job, you know. And across the world, you know, this, this process was really pretty much replicated with, you know, huge labor forces building amazing structures. Just think, I mean, the UK is fairly tame in what it's built, but you think of the railways going through uh, mountain ranges, going, you know, even across uh, lakes, across uh, the sea, in the case of a, a railway in Florida, which actually kind of stretched 100 miles out into the sea over a set of islands, you know, across deserts, amazingly kind of taming nature through jungles and the like. So it was a process that was inevitably dangerous, inevitably very costly, but by and large, the railways won. They were built and, and completed. So Edda Nicholson has also asked about the workforces who were taking on this hard, dangerous labour, as you say. Um, She said the railways have always been notable sites of trade union activity. Can you tell us anything more about that? Well, that's very interesting. You see, that's another thing that when we talked about the railways kind of changing everything, yes, they were the centre of trade unions both in America and the UK and several other countries. And why was that? Well, because they had large workforces, railway companies tended to build the locomotives, build the carriages. So they had factories like that. They had big sheds. Steam engines required a lot of labor. There were a lot of people at platforms and so on. So they had huge workforces, which then were able to organize thanks to their size and also thanks to their union strength, because they could threaten not to run the services. So they always had a a great advantage in that they could stop the railway companies immediately from making any money by just withdrawing their labour. So a lot of early strikes, and this stretches from across the the UK, India, America, several other places. A lot of the early strikes and early uh, trade union activity came from, from the railways thanks to those advantages those workers had possibly over over others. So now we've got a few questions about travelling on the early railways. Um, And one of our listeners on Instagram has asked how the railways changed the lives of ordinary working people. Initially, were they affordable for ordinary working people? Uh, The railways initially were, right at the beginning, were probably uh, largely used by more affluent people. But quickly, the railway companies understood there was a vast market out there. So there were different classes, usually three classes of travel with very different prices, with the first class paying a lot more than the the second and and a lot more than the third. And there was also some legislation in some countries, certainly in the UK, there was legislation to ensure that uh, people had a right to travel for a certain cost per mile, at least with one train a day offering that kind of cheap service. So that was uh, encouraged a usage. But also, it was highly profitable to cram lots of people into relatively small carriages and transport them from one end of the line to, to the other. That was, a, that was a profitable business. So while initially the railways were conceived probably mainly to transport goods and possibly for the odd kind of carriage for, for kind of well-off people, very rapidly they became a means of transport for the people and became a mass transit system, which had not been envisaged, but became a very important part of what the railways were for. 
Well, Ms. Marcus on Twitter has asked when it became mainstream for working people to use the trains as a means of leisure travel. So you spoke about commuting earlier. But what about trains for, for holidays? Well, that's interesting because quite early on, by the 1840s, for example, there were huge trains with up to 20, 30 carriages, which would, at uh, on bank holiday days, transport people out from places like Leeds or Manchester or other kind of cities out to the seaside where, uh, you know, they would stay for the day and come back on, on the train that evening. And very soon, Thomas Cook invented train tours, taking people out for picnics to places and then coming back usually on the same day. And so, and then later on, of course, we get people uh, traveling for a week by the seaside or a week to the mountains or whatever by, by rail, coming back by rail again. So holidays were a big kind of aspect of railway use right from the beginning. And again, that's something that you can put down to the railways having uh, enabled, really, because unless you had railways, people couldn't get to the seaside from Leeds or anywhere else, you know, and... So the railways uh, quickly had spread out to the to the seaside resorts and quickly the hotels then developed as a result of that and needed business. And so the trains took took people there and, and the whole thing was a kind of symbiotic relationship between the hotels, uh, the railways and the, the holiday makers. So, again, that's something that is down to the railways. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the Second World War, a guy called Ian Allen, who was a railway clerk, decided to print out a list of all the locomotives that there were and started a business out of this. And after the Second World War, it became immensely popular. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 
And what would it have been like to travel on one of these early railways in the 19th century or perhaps the early 20th century? Martin Fennerty has asked about the facilities like food, drinks and toilets that were available on early trains. Well, there weren't any available on early trains, certainly for the first 20 or 30 years. And you have to note that on the early trains, there were compartments. So there was a door for each compartment with six or eight people uh, in them. And so there was no access to a corridor except for the guard who sometimes had a sort of wooden board outside and went to check people's tickets, kind of walking along on the long side of the train on the outside, a perilous task indeed. And gradually by the mid 19th century, the, the latter part of the mid 19th century, they, uh, some of the 1860s, 1870s, you start getting corridor trains that enables you to have toilets uh, and that also enables you to have dining cars where people can, can walk to. Now, in America, it was different. In America, they didn't have compartments because the journeys tended to be much longer. They straight away had kind of open plan carriages that you could then walk along and walk along to the, the next carriage and had toilets more, more quickly. In Britain, you had initially very much toilet stops. You'd stop at a station kind of every hour or a couple of hours, and people would use the, the facilities in the station. You also had, uh, for example, towns which developed almost solely to uh, provide food for train travellers. So Swindon is the example of that, where the train company, to get permission and buy the land, had to uh, promise to stop every train at Swindon, which is kind of 100 and 100 miles kind of uh, west of London uh, for 20 minutes to enable them to sell food to the travellers. And then it continued. And that continued right until the 1880s, until they bought out that right. So there was always a problem of, of providing stuff. And it was quite, the railways companies were quite slow in providing these facilities. But by the end of the 19th century, they were becoming, you know, toilets and dining cars and the lights were becoming universal. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about trains being used to transport not only passengers, but also goods. And we've had a question in from Miss 93 about who staged the first train hijack or train robbery. Uh, well, I can't quite answer the first uh, what the first one was, but right from the beginning of the railways, they carried mail. That was an important revenue earner and they would have contracts you know, in various places in the world with the with the local post office. And of course, for the post offices, it was so much more efficient than putting stuff in stagecoaches and the like. And of course, uh, lots of the mail was quite valuable. And so there were robberies of on, on trains. Again, particularly in America, where, you know, there, there was, there, they also hauled bullion on trains and the like. And there were lots of famous kind of holdups of trains in very remote places. And of course, this continued right until the 1960s. There was the great uh, British train robbery about which films have, have been made and, and so on, where they, they stole a, a more than a million pounds in used banknotes, which are about to be destroyed. So there is a tradition of crime uh, along with the, along with the, the railways. They, they, it was just too kind of enticing for the criminal fraternity to see all this valuable stuff transported on the railways and not kind of think that they could have a go at stealing it. And staying with the darker side of train travel for a moment, Marina on Instagram has asked when the first railway accident was. 
Well, interestingly enough, the first railway accident, it wasn't a crash, but the first death was at the opening of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, where a politician by the name of Huskisson didn't quite understand how the railways functioned. There were several trains going on the line at that time, and they stopped kind of at a halfway place. And he got off the train and rushed out to meet the, the Prime Minister at the time, and then walked back to his carriage, failed to see a train and got hit by it. And he was rushed in another train off to a local vicarage, but he died there. The death of William Huskinson was very famous, obviously, at the day, rather marred the start of the railways. And from the beginning, actually, there weren't that many train crashes because there weren't that many trains to crash into each other. So there were a few derailments. But there was a very severe fire in France in the early 1840s, which killed quite a lot of people on on a holiday who'd gone out to Versailles, I think it was, from Paris. And uh, the train stopped and caught fire. And the people were locked into their compartments and uh, many perished on that day. And over the 19th century, there was a history of very spectacular Train crashes. Actually, Charles Dickens was in one, not a very big one, where maybe half a dozen people were killed, but it it really shocked him. And there were some absolute major serious disasters, particularly during the First World War, when trains were very heavily used. And there was a couple of runaway trains, one in Romania, one in France, which killed several hundred people. And it took some time before safety was the guiding principle. I think the early railway companies were a bit cavalier about... Uh, safety practices and were too intent on kind of saving money and taking people around the countryside quickly. And that really continued till the Second World War, when it's only since then that the rate of railway accidents has plummeted and there are now very, very few rail disasters. They are all largely preventable with better maintenance, better kind of technology, better signalling and, you know, lots of safety practices. And nowadays, the railways were, are, you know, they always were a relatively safe form of travel, but nowadays they really are by far the most safe form of, of land travel. You mentioned there that there were some notable crashes in the First World War, and Gareth Rees Collins has a question about the railways and their role in conflict over time. Obviously, this is a huge topic, but Gareth says, I'm told that in Spain back in the 19th century, a different gauge was used uh, to the one in France to avoid a hypothetical invasion um, using the railways. What other examples exist of the role that railways have played in military conflicts? Oh, well, Gareth is spot on there. It's interesting that two countries at the kind of far end of Europe, Spain in in the the southwest and, and Russia in the east, both had different gauges for that reason and have so to this day. And in fact, the different gauge that Russia had played a very key role in the the Second World War when the Germans invaded uh, Russia, but were slowed because precisely because they had to transship goods from one uh, gauge to another, or they had to re-gauge the railways and so on. Um, I've actually written a book called Engines of War about the relationship between railways and warfare. And what I argued in that book... Uh, is again, I mean, we're back to the subject, the railways changed everything. They certainly changed the nature of warfare. Because if you think about it, in the Napoleonic Wars, the Battle of Waterloo, it lasts for less than a day. And 100 years later, you get the Battle of the Somme in the First World War, which lasts for nine months. And what was the difference? 
Well, the difference was obviously some technology in terms of weaponry, but the key difference was that uh, the railways were able to feed the troops on the front line, both with ammunition and, and with, with men, almost to an infinite degree, because they, they, they were enabled to supply uh, the front lines kind of absolutely constantly. Whereas uh, in the Battle of Waterloo, that had to end within a day because it was all dependent on horses. Horses need feeding. They, they use vast amounts of forage. You can't actually sustain uh, that sort of battle for any sort of time without uh, the railways backing you up. And it is noticeable that, I mean, this is a huge subject, but it is noticeable that even uh, today with the war in Ukraine, the railways are paying, playing an absolute key role in the conflict, both in moving people around, but also in moving equipment around. And one of the first things the Ukrainians did when the Russians tried to attack uh, from the north from uh, into Kiev, they blew up the railways behind them. And that stopped the Russians from uh, actually supplying their lorries and their tanks and whatever, and was one of the reasons why, though, famously, all that equipment got stuck to the north of Kiev and then had to retreat. And that was because they had no railway support. So railways, ever since their invention in the 1830s, have played a key role in every war that has happened uh, since then. So following on from that, one of our listeners on Instagram has asked which country or countries benefited most from the introduction of railways? I mean, there's many ways you could approach this question, but what would you say? Well, I would put it the other way around. I'd say there isn't a country that I didn't benefit from it, uh, that countries without railways kind of suffered greatly. I mean, South America has not built a lot of railways, and I think that was uh, one real problem for their economy. Let's just give a couple of examples. I mean, one thing is that railways pull countries together. So in America, there was always this idea of building a transcontinental railway across from east to west, 3,000 miles long. And it was finally built in the uh, 1860s, actually started during the Civil War there, finished in 1869. And if you think about it, one of the reasons why America became a united country, remember the states kind of joined kind of individually very much uh, over the space of the 19th century, one of the reasons why it was a united country was because one was able to travel right across it. And if it hadn't been for the railways, I somewhat suspect that California and Washington State and, and the likes uh, in the West would be in a different country than New York and Massachusetts in the East. Um, similarly, Russia built a trans-Siberian railway, again, which, uh, on which I've written a book. And one of the reasons they built that railway was to hold Russia together, to establish itself over that territory. And it played a very key role in, in doing so. Again, you can imagine that without the railway, Siberia would not, not, not have been uh, in the same country, maybe, as, as Russia. So uh, railways and nation states, the creation of nation states, goes very much together. And it is impossible to answer your listener's question in the negative. In other words, it's impossible to say that there is any country where uh, they built railways that didn't benefit from it. Uh, uh, India is the, my final example where, again, I've written a book, I'm afraid, called Railways and the Raj, and uh, which shows very clearly that the railways were not necessarily built for the Indians. They were built by the British as a kind of way of establishing their empire and ensuring that you could transport goods across India for export and also bringing in goods, manufactured goods for sale in, in India. But rather kind of surprisingly for the British who built them, the Indians took them to the railways 
in a way that probably no other nation has taken to them. And they, the railways in India is absolutely symbiotic. And the railways were enormously instrumental in enabling India to hold together as a nation and to enable people to travel around it and to est- help establish uh, the Indian economy. Well, I wonder if I could ask you a bit more about that, because we've had a question in from History EHC about how much railway track the British Empire laid down. And I wonder if you could elaborate a bit more about the role of railways in the imperial project, particularly in the British context. Indeed. In fact, the railways were built very much for the economic benefit of the British companies which built them and the the British state which discovered that the railways were a very useful way of ensuring military occupation. So particularly in India, but in other places, it was, they realised it was much cheaper to build railway lines and to have a few garrisons in key points where the soldiers could spread across the country very quickly by rail to quell any riots or uprisings and the likes. So the railways were an integral part of the imperial project. And the same in far-off places, uh, such as uh, South Africa, other places in in Africa, uh, as well as India, the, the railways played a key role both for economic imperialism and military imperialism. And just to bring things back to Britain for a moment, Ado Mohammed has asked, after the railways contributed so much to the economic growth of Britain in the 19th century, as you've demonstrated in this conversation, how and why did they become uneconomical and unprofitable in the later 20th century? Well, there's a very easy answer to that, which is the motor car. So you have to think about the fact that in the 19th century, there were the railways and there was pretty much nothing else to go any substantial distance or indeed even uh, to commute kind of uh, reliably. So the roads were uh, very poor. The stagecoaches would take three or four days to, say, travel between London and Edinburgh, whereas the railway could do it in seven or eight hours. So uh, the railways had this fantastic economic advantage. So it was quite uh, clear that the private companies that built the railways could make a very healthy profit because also it was generally railways were a monopoly. Yes, there were some competing lines between, say, London and Scotland and the like, but by and large, it was quite profitable because it was a monopoly. You know, if you had to go uh, to, to some place, it was very likely you had no choice of what train company to use and so on. And, of course, along comes the motor car in the beginning of the 20th century. And at first, it doesn't make great inroads into that uh, market. But over the course, particularly after the First World War, motor cars then became more prevalent. Uh, You get motor coaches. You get goods lorries taking away some of the profitable goods traffic, freight traffic. And nevertheless, the railways hold their own between the wars. But after the Second World War, you get mass motorization, you get the building of motorways. And this is not just in Britain, this is across the world. And it becomes impossible to run a profitable railway. But the railways are still very important. So although they were then cut back, and some obviously totally uneconomic lines were, were closed, they were still a very necessary part of the transport infrastructure. So the state largely then intervened in most countries and then took over the railways In some cases, they cut them back drastically, notably in in Latin America, where 
largely railways were abandoned in large parts of Africa, passenger railways were, were cut back completely. In America, passenger railways were largely closed down apart from on the, on the East Coast. But in other places, there was start of investment in railways. There was getting rid of steam engines. There was so dieselization and electrification and the like. And a realization by the kind of last quarter of the 20th century that the railways were here to stay, played a very important role and really investment started again, particularly with high-speed railways, certain freight railways, commuter lines, uh, tramway systems, and so on. So they've, in a way, gone full circle. And this this kind of 19th century invention, which declined greatly in part of the 20th century, has then kind of found very much a very important niche for the 21st century. I wonder if you could tell us a tiny bit more about the story of um, the railways in 20th century Britain, just about the impact um, that you mentioned there of nationalisation in the 1940s, but also the impact of later privatisation in the 1990s. Well, the, the railways started becoming less economic after the First World War. And during the First World War, they were taken over by the state uh, because they were an essential part of the war effort. And that, again, happened in, in, in numerous countries across the world. They were consolidated into four companies in the UK, which were private, but which uh, struggled somewhat to pay dividends to their shareholders because they faced very intense competition. So after the Second World War, where, again, the railways were taken over by the government, after the Second World War, they were nationalised and taken over by the state as one company, British Railways, and British Railways struggled in its early days. And it was always the, the problem that the railways were expected to pay their way, even though it was very difficult to pay their way. So uh, there was always pressure on the railways to cut back, to, to close down lines or to put up the prices too much and so on. And then finally, it was realised that actually, although there was a commercial aspect to railways, for longer distance travel and maybe commuting and so on, which can pay their way. There's also a social aspect whereby the railways play a vital part in the lives of, you know, particularly regional cities, smaller towns and so on. And without their railways, uh, they decline economically very quickly. So governments have realised that you need to subsidise the railways. But there was always pressure for them to pay their way and always the, the idea that, you know, they could go back into the private sector. So in the UK, they were privatised in the mid-1990s, not entirely successfully because they still needed subsidy. The private companies always struggled in ways to, to find, to, to make a profit. And it has been a fairly chaotic process. And we're now at a stage where it looks as if the railways are largely going to be uh, state-controlled uh, once again. And in fact, part of the railways already are. The railways have, to some extent, been a political football. So whereas, you know, the Labour Party has always said, well, they should be uh, state-owned uh, and state-run, the Tory party have tended to want to, to privatise them. And so they, they have been a, a source of conflict, political conflict, which is a great shame, because actually... In most other countries, many other countries in Europe, certainly, it's just recognised that the railways are a key part of the infrastructure, that they need subsidy, they need the support of the state, and and, uh, that's kind of accepted in the same way that, say, you accept that you need a roads, you need an army, you need a police force. 
Next, I wanted to put a question to you from Rob on Instagram, who's just asked, when did people start getting into train spotting as a hobby? Well, there is a, a key moment. I, I suspect there were train spotters before the Second World War, but in the Second World War, a guy called Ian Allen, who was a railway clerk, decided to print out a list of all the locomotives that there were and started a business out of this. And after the Second World War, it became immensely popular for young boys, it was largely boys, to get hold of the Loco Spotters Annual and to stand at platform edges and take down the numbers of the various locomotives that, that went by. And I confess that uh, until the age of 14 or 15, I did stand at the end of a few platforms myself. And then I got interested in girls and girls were certainly not interested in locomotives. So uh, I then abandoned that. Um, and I suspect that so did many other teenage boys. It was quite a British phenomenon, actually. There, there are kind of uh, you know, train buffs in other countries. Uh, they're called grises in, in this country. They're, in the United States, they're called foamers because apparently they foam at the mouth when they see a, a, a steam locomotive. Seems a bit unfair. But there didn't seem to be that obsession with numbers that the, that the British had and taking down the, the numbers and kind of standing at the end of platforms. There certainly there are rail fans across the world. Mm, fantastic. And finally... I just wondered whether there was a really surprising fact that you'd like to share from the history of railways to leave our listeners with. Okay, I've got one that I think is is quite extraordinary, which is that in America, by 1916, they had 254,000 miles of railway. And when you think, oh, that's quite a lot of railway, and they've still got about 100,000 miles, actually. But when, when you calculate what that involved, what the building of that involved, Right, that's 86 years of building railway. The first one was uh, 1830. And you do the math, and essentially you find that for every day of those 86 uh, years, the Americans built eight miles of railway. Eight miles of railway every day for 86 years. And, they, they, and you start to think about what that involves. The rails, the sleepers, the locomotives, the stations, uh, the wagons. Uh, everything else, you realise that the, the railways were the key to capitalist development. I mean, nothing else could have uh, had so much investment poured into them uh, and had such a huge effect. So eight miles per day for 86 years. I just love that statistic. That was Christian Walmart. His books on various aspects of rail history include Railways and the Raj, British Rail and New History, and Blood, Iron and Gold, How the Railways Transformed the World. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 